Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So maybe you do want to keep those seatbelts fastened. The lead starts right now. Major questions raised today about your safety in the air as senators grill the FAA. Why the agency cannot be so sure there will not be more runway near misses and grounded flights. Plus, Nikki Haley officially kicks off her 2024 campaign, bringing a pledge to bring in a new generation of leadership. But how long can she maintain this delicate dance, throwing subtle shade at Trump while not alienating his supporters? And... Hey, you know that first flying object shot down, the one that was deemed a Chinese spy balloon? U.S. Intel now says maybe it wasn't supposed to be over the continental U.S. after all. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our politics lead and the airport chaos taking over Capitol Hill after the series of near collisions and a nationwide ground stop that led to thousands of delayed and canceled flights. The acting head of the Federal Aviation Administration, Billy Nolan, today faced bipartisan criticism and probing by lawmakers who hauled him before the Senate Commerce Committee, where Nolan admitted that there remain vulnerabilities in the system that led to that ground stop, a computer system known as NOTAM. The issue with the NOTAM system last month led to the first nationwide stoppage of flights since the September 11th attacks in 2001. And, of course, it left tens of thousands of Americans stranded across the country. Just two days later, a Delta flight had to abort its takeoff from New York's JFK airport after an American Airlines flight crossed right in front of it. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Delta 1943, cancel takeoff clearance. Then earlier this month, a FedEx plane trying to land in Austin had to change course to avoid potentially hitting a Southwest flight on the same runway. And just moments ago, we learned of a third near collision under investigation. CNN's Gabe Cohen starts off our coverage now as the FAA chief announces an extensive safety review of the agency. A series of system meltdowns and near disasters. We cannot and must not become complacent. Landing the FAA's acting administrator, Billy Nolan, in front of a Senate committee just hours after announcing a sweeping safety review for the agency. We have a, a backup redundant system. Why couldn't we just go to that system? Uh, Thank you, Madam Chair, for the question. One focus, the NOTAM system that failed last month, triggering the first national ground stop since 9-11. The cause? A contractor accidentally deleting files during system maintenance. They no longer have access to either FAA facilities or the NOTAM system. The FAA says it's moving to a more modernized system by 2025. And for now, it's put in safeguards to prevent a repeat. We're about halfway through it uh, in terms of our modernization of the NOTEM system. Is there redundancy being built into it, or can a single screw-up ground air traffic nationwide? We do have redundancy there. 
Could I sit here today and tell you there will never be another issue on the notice system? No, sir, I cannot. What I can say is that we are making every effort to modernize and look at our procedures. But now aviation safety is under the microscope after two near collisions at JFK and Austin and a United 777 diving toward the ocean after takeoff from Hawaii for reasons the FAA and United are keeping confidential. Administrator Nolan offering little on the incidents themselves. I'm asking if you have an answer today about why this occurred. No, ma'am. That, that investigation is still ongoing. And now the FAA is planning an extensive safety review of the agency, including a summit with industry partners next month to game plan solutions and then dig through flight data to find out if more of these incidents are happening. Can I say to the American public that we are safe? The answer is that we are. Is the, if the question is, can we be better? The answer is absolutely, and that's the piece we're working on. And this afternoon, we're learning about yet another incursion, another close call, the third in recent weeks. This one on January 23rd in Honolulu, where the FAA says a United 777 crossed a runway despite being told not to by air traffic control, right as a cargo plan was landing on that same runway. Now, the FAA says the two aircrafts we're just a little more than a thousand feet apart, but now both the FAA and the NTSB, Jake, are investigating, and we don't know why this is just coming to light today. All right, Gabe Cohen, thank you so much. Appreciate it. With us now, Republican Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska. He's a Marine Corps veteran, member of the Reserves, who serves on both the Senate Commerce and Armed Services Committee and participated in today's hearing. Senator, thanks for joining us. Are you confident you. Uh, that a catastrophic meltdown like what happened last month will not happen again? No, I'm not confident. That's why we held the hearing. Actually, this is the second hearing we've held on aviation safety, aviation issues just in the last two weeks on the Commerce Committee. You might remember the Southwest meltdown over the holidays and then this OTAM meltdown. This is a big wake-up call for our country and certainly the FAA, and it's this. It's um, old technology. We need to update technology to make sure our systems are able to function well, function during storms like we saw over um, the holidays and make sure we continue to have the safest aviation travel system anywhere in the world. Is there appetite uh, in Cap on Capitol Hill to, to spend the money to update the technology so that we, we have the systems we need? Oh, I think absolutely. Um, certainly from this senator you do. And, and here's the reason, Jake. I mean, Americans take for granted that we have, like I said, the safest air travel of any place on the planet. It's a great record. But what we don't want, and we're starting to see indications that it could happen, we don't want innovations and technological uh, advancements spurred by some kind of major disaster. We want to be able to be in front of this. To me, the signals are out there already that we need, we need to be proactive, not reactive. And I'll tell you this, in my state, in the great state of Alaska, boy, we need huge upgrades to our aviation system. We have over 250 communities that aren't connected by roads. And you need safe travel by air in Alaska, but across the country. So the answer to your question is absolutely yes. And now we're talking about three near collisions three. involving huge passenger planes. There was one that we just learned about in Honolulu, all of these within a month of each other. Did you get answers on how this is being addressed? 
Well, to be honest, the news of the third one um, is something that I just learned about as well. But it makes the point that I've been making, which is we need to get in front of this. Three warnings, three warnings. And in addition, like I said, to the meltdown of Southwest over the holidays, to me, is a very significant warning that we got to take preemptive measures, proactive measures, to make sure we have safety. That's why we've had two hearings in the last two weeks on this. We'll continue to do it. We also need an FAA administrator. You saw today the witness was an acting administrator. We need a full Senate-confirmed administrator soon, have the hearings soon, to press on these issues when he goes through his confirmation. Let's turn to another issue that I know is important to you as an Alaskan, the Chinese spy balloon. Yeah. Um, the Senate got a classified briefing on China in the last hour. Do you think President Biden handled this correctly, both the, the spy balloon and also the three subsequent aircraft uh, had, that have been shot down from the sky? Well, look, the first thing you mentioned, Alaska, the first thing I want to do on your show is do a shout out to the Alaska Air Forces, active duty, National Guard. Jake, think about what they've done in the last 10 days. They tracked this big balloon. They went and intercepted it. They tracked these smaller um, radar signatures of objects. They went and intercepted those, shot two of those down, the one over Alaska, the one over Canada. Those were Alaskan-based forces that shot down the Canadian one. And then just yesterday, they intercepted a bear bomber with two fighter escorts that was trying to get in to the American aid is in Alaska. That was, one, that was two weeks of work. Our, our military forces in Alaska, which by the way is the top cover of America, were so critical to our nation's defensives. They've been working overtime. But I will tell you this, I've been satisfied with the briefings I've gotten from the military. General Van Herc, the NORTHCOM commander, has kept me well informed on the tracking of the object Friday. I strongly encourage him, by the way, in a bipartisan manner, to shoot that aircraft down, which is what they ended up doing. But where I've not been satisfied is the broader administration's lack of transparency. There are a number of things we learned in the briefing yesterday um, that I've been aware of that I think the American people should know about. And, you know, there's things that they should let us know. There's things that they should tell us they don't know. Of course, they shouldn't let on to sources and methods, but I don't think they've been transparent enough. And as you know, when they're not transparent, then, you know, the wild speculation, unfounded fears can result in the public. They need to be more transparent. Anything you want to share with us from the briefing? I'm sure our viewers uh, would, would love to hear. Well, look, today's briefing was actually, yesterday's briefing was on the balloons. And I pressed them to share more, which I think it's up to the executive branch to do Today's briefing was on the broader China threat. It was the office of net assessment. It's still going on. It's a highly classified briefing, but I will tell you this, it was a sobering briefing because our military advantage relative to the Chinese continues to erode. And we need to focus on that. And I'm calling on the president to focus on that. It was his administration giving this briefing that I just walked out of about the erosion of our advantage relative to the Chinese. In each year, the president sends up a budget for defense. That's defense uh, cuts. And, you know, it's a huge disconnect. His, his administration is literally telling 100 senators right now about the challenges and the erosion of our military advantage. In each year, they send up cuts to the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. Makes no sense. And um, I think they need to put forward a budget that reflects the threats 
that they're briefing senators on right now. And also, U.S. intelligence officials are, are investigating the possibility that that Chinese spy balloon was meant to fly over Guam, where the U.S. has military facilities, but instead was blown wildly off course because of strong wings, winds. Um, what, do you, what do you make of that? So again, this is what's a little frustrating. I've been in several classified briefings about these spy balloons. I have not heard that in any of the classified briefings. We had briefings yesterday that, that said in a classified setting that the Pentagon and the intelligence community was not sure where these um, additional balloons and objects have come from. Uh, I still think we should suspect the worst, like our adversaries, China and Russia. And then you have, right after that briefing, um, Admiral Kirby at the National Security Council staff saying he doesn't think it's China at all. Again, that's a disconnect to what 100 senators were told yesterday. So I think they need to get their story straight. My understanding of that Chinese spy balloon, it had propulsion to do some directional travel. So I'm not sure it was subject fully to the winds. And um, it seemed to be directed uh, over Alaska and the rest of the country in a way that was purposeful. But we'll learn more, obviously, as we recover those, uh, the spy balloon and the other objects. Republican Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska, it's always good to see you, sir. Thank you so good much to see for you, joining Jake. us. Thanks. Coming up, the bold step as prosecutors question whether Donald Trump committed a crime and talked about it with his lawyer. Plus, students at Michigan State now taking the lead, their new push to change gun laws just days after a mass shooting on their campus. And the striking moment in court just before a judge sentenced the gunman responsible for a different mass shooting. Stay with us. In our national lead, new questions over whether the massacre at Michigan State University Monday evening could have been prevented in any way. Police are still trying to figure out what led the lone gunman to commit such a violent act. This is the community prepares for a campus vigil tonight to honor the three student lives cut short and the five injured students who remain in critical condition. Here's CNN's Miguel Marquez. The community will never be the same. Michigan State University students, Spartans, rally at the state capitol for gun laws to prevent more mass shootings. I'm just very shaken up about it and I can't even imagine what they went through, so I'm just here to support everybody that went through what they did. How tough is it to, to sort of process what's happened there? I, I still am. I don't know. It's hard. You never think it's going to happen to you, but then it does. The sense of anger here, palpable. No one should have to live through this. Also a sense that maybe, just maybe, the tide for meaningful gun reform laws could be changing. I think our community is just trying to band together and support one another, and you know, hopefully we can, we can make a change here. The dead just starting out in life. 19-year-old Ariel Anderson, who wanted to be a pediatrician. Alexandria Werner, a junior described as a perfect student who loves sports. Brian Frazier, a sophomore, was president of his fraternity. I'm just, I'm sad. I'm devastated at, you know, what's happened, and... Um, I'm wishing nothing but the best for those recovering in the hospital right now. One of the five critically injured, Guadalupe Wapia Perez, the daughter of farm workers, a junior studying the hospitality business. A GoFundMe page has now been set up to support what's expected to be a long recovery. 
I really think that the elected officials who are refusing to talk about this are just, they've got, they're out of touch. They haven't realized that from Oxford and Uvalde and now this, that the average gun owner in Michigan, the average person who feel strongly about their Second Amendment rights, also feel strongly about keeping their babies safe in school. Still unclear if the two handguns found on the shooter who took his own life were purchased legally. In 2019, he was charged with a felony for carrying a concealed weapon. He pled guilty to a misdemeanor and served probation until May 2021. A law enforcement source tells CNN the gunman purchased the two guns that same year. So the attorney general's office and the state police here in Michigan are still trying to sort out whether those guns were, in fact, legally purchased. Uh, meanwhile, here on campus, the memorials are growing at different locations across campus. There'll be a vigil later tonight, but I can tell you, Jake, in East Lansing, there are lots of tears and growing anger. Back to you. Miguel Marquez in East Lansing, Michigan, and I will tweet out that GoFundMe that you mentioned uh, when you send it to me, Miguel. Coming up next, uh, Nikki Haley's big campaign launch today and the shade she threw at Donald Trump without calling him out by name. Stay with us. That's former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley in front of adoring fans. She officially tossed her hat into the 2024 race for president today, making herself the first major Republican challenger to former President Donald Trump's candidacy. Haley noting in her speech today that it's time for a new generation of leadership. She even called, jokingly, I think, for mental competency tests for politicians over the age of 75. CNN's Kylie Atwood has the big moments from Charleston, South Carolina. For a strong America, for a proud America, I am running for president of the United States of America. Nikki Haley throwing her hat into the ring for the 2024 presidential race. We're ready, ready to move past the stale ideas and faded names of the past. The proud daughter of Indian immigrants calling for a generational change in American politics. America is not past our prime. It's just that our politicians are past theirs. The twice-elected governor of South Carolina turned 51 last month, even calling for a competency test for older politicians, which would include President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump, now her rival for the GOP nomination. And mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75 years old. She detailed her vision for America's future and for the direction of the Republican Party. We've lost the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. Well, that ends today. As the former ambassador to the United Nations, she focused in on the threat from China, too. It is unthinkable that Americans would look at the sky and see a Chinese spy balloon looking back at us. Highlighting her identity as a woman of color, she waded into the culture wars animating her party, proclaiming that America is not a racist country. This self-loathing is a virus more dangerous than any pandemic. It's a system of a lack of pride in our country and a lack of trust in our leaders. If her bid is successful, Haley would be the first woman and the first Asian American nominated by the Republican Party for president. This is not the America that called to my parents. 
And make no mistake, this is not the America I will leave to my children. With her announcement, Haley is the first major Republican challenger to Trump, who's criticized her decision to enter the 2024 fray, despite saying he encouraged her to run. I said, look, you know, go by your heart if you want to run. For her part, Haley only mentioned Trump once in her speech today, with the two likely to be joined soon by other Republican hopefuls in the coming months. As I set out on this new journey, I will simply say this. May the best woman win. Jake, Nikki Haley really had a little bit of something in this speech for all Republicans. And we should note that even though it's only officially her and the former President Trump that are candidates in the race right now, the other Republicans who are expected to get into the race are leaning in. Tomorrow here in Charleston, South Carolina, will be Senator Tim Scott. And today in Iowa, Asa Hutchinson and former Vice President Mike Pence. Jake. All right. It's heating up. Kylie Atwood, thanks so much. Let's bring in former South Carolina State Representative Bakari Sellers, a Democrat and former staffer for then-Governor Nikki Haley, uh, Gavin Smith. Thanks to both of you for being here. Bakari, let's start with you. I want to start with one of the key moments from Haley's speech. Take a listen. Every day we're told America is flawed, rotten, and full of hate. Joe and Kamala even say America's racist. Nothing could be further from the truth. And take it from me, the first minority female governor in history, America is not a racist country. Now, just as a factual matter, I, I've looked and I cannot find any quotes of President Biden or Vice President Harris saying that America is, is racist. In fact, they have said the opposite. But beyond that factual issue, what do you make of her pitch there? I mean, I, I think she's wading into the culture wars that define this Republican Party head first. One of the things that Nikki Haley is going to present to the country is something we know in South Carolina, that she's very shrewd, she's very cunning, and she's a really, really good politician. But with that, though, you'll see the inconsistencies. With that, though, you'll see that these statements and many of her positions ring hollow. I mean, the fact is she made this announcement and she knows this. If I were talking to uh, Governor Haley, Ambassador Haley, Nikki right now, she knows this. She made this, she made this statement and this remark a mile away from where nine people were murdered in a church simply because they were black. And she also knows, and she's being intellectually dishonest, that we're not saying America is racist. We're not saying there's anything irredeemable about this country. We are saying that America has never dealt with the issue of race or racism, and we need to learn that history in its full concept so that we can actually have reconciliation and healing. She can throw off any talking point she wants, but it's that type of intellectual dishonesty which is going to trip her up against somebody like Donald Trump. And, and Gavin, there was another clear theme throughout Haley's speech that it's time for a new generation of leadership. Obviously, Biden is in his 80s. Uh, Trump is in his late 70s. Nikki Haley is 51. Take a listen. America is not past our prime. It's just that our politicians are past theirs. <laughs> In the America I see, the permanent politician will finally retire. We'll have term limits for Congress and mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75 years old. What do you think of that? It, it seemed to me like a way for her to say she was going after Biden while also going after Trump. But how did you interpret it? 
Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Jake. I think that it, she made a clear distinction between herself, President, uh, President Biden, and former President Donald, Tra uh, Donald Trump. She distinguished, hey, she's 50 in her 50s. Donald Trump turned 75 in July, and President Biden, as we know, is in is in his 80s you know so at, at this point i think it's very clear that she's trying to distinguish herself as a new generation of leadership for america and bakari how long do you think haley's going to be able to walk this line distancing herself from trump in vague ways uh, but not attacking him by name i mean it, this is the thing that republicans are the conundrum that republicans are going to have i mean you you can't be halfway in this race Either you're going to take Trump on or you're not. I mean, you, you can't toe this line that long, which is the reason that somebody like uh, Nikki Haley probably won't be in this race uh, much longer than the Clemson Carolina football game in November. I doubt she'll make it to Iowa. Um, but the, the, the fact is, the person who is able to take on Trump, the person who can beat Trump is going to be somebody who launches a full frontal attack on Donald Trump. Not just uh, not just trying to tiptoe around him, tiptoe around his insecurities, tiptoe around his failures, tiptoe around who he actually is and his lack of character. If Nikki Haley it goes back to Nikki Haley of 2010, when she beat Gresham Barrett, when she beat Andre Bauer, when she beat Henry McMaster, when she beat all the boys and beat them at their own game, where she was cunning and strong and stood for something, that Nikki Haley is formidable. The Nikki Haley that goes with the win today, I don't know who she is, but she can't beat Donald Trump. Gavin, within an hour of Haley finishing her speech, Trump's campaign sent out an email titled The Real Nikki Haley. Uh, they went after her for saying that Hillary Clinton was an inspiration to her. They say she's threatened Medicare and Social Security. She supports sending more American fighter planes into Ukraine and on and on and on. You worked for the Trump administration as well as for Nikki Haley's administration. Um, do you think Trump feels threatened by her candidacy at all? Yeah, I think unquestionably Donald Trump and his campaign feels threatened by Nikki Haley. And Bakari, I, I, you know I love you, but I think you're dead wrong. Nikki Haley is someone that Donald Trump should be scared of. And I think today's day one of her candidacy for president. And I think that you'll see that the Nikki Haley that we know, that I know you and I know, I think you'll see that person come out and the gloves will come off and she'll be unafraid to take on Donald Trump. All right, Gavin Smith and Bakari Sellers, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Coming up. The new legal problems for Donald Trump bound to complicate his political life, including the trail of evidence that might, might point to a crime. Continuing with our politics lead and, and what appears to be the most aggressive move yet in special counsel Jack Smith's rather aggressive investigation into Donald Trump's handling of classified documents. As CNN's Paula Reid reports, federal prosecutors have told a judge they believe there's evidence of a possible crime or fraud and they need more answers from one of Trump's attorneys. The Justice Department making its most aggressive move yet in its investigation into former President Trump. Prosecutors telling a judge they have evidence Trump may have committed a crime through his lawyer in an effort to compel Evan Corcoran to provide additional testimony to a grand jury about the former president's retention of classified material and alleged efforts to obstruct federal investigators. They rifled through the first lady's closet drawers and everything else. Sources say in Corcoran's first grand jury appearance, he invoked attorney-client privilege to some questions. Investigators now want to ask him about all that led up to the FBI's search of Mar-a-Lago last August. And even did a deep and ugly search 
of the room of my 16-year-old son, leaving everything they touched in far different condition than it was when they started. Can you believe it? The FBI and the Justice Department have become vicious monsters. Investigators had subpoenaed any classified documents still in Trump's possession after he turned over an initial batch of government records to the National Archives. They should give me immediately back everything that they've taken from me because it's mine. It's mine. Corcoran helped to draft a statement attesting that there were no more classified records at Mar-a-Lago before the FBI scoured the Florida property and found hundreds more. Corcoran is one of three Trump lawyers who have gone before the grand jury. What they did was to try and criminalize Donald Trump, as they always do. They found these three mundane statutes, espionage and the two others, obstruction. Attorney Alina Haba took the stand in mid-January. Prior to the FBI search, Haba personally looked through several Trump properties, including Mar-a-Lago, for documents in a separate civil case against the Trump family business. Trump lawyer Tim Parlatori insists his client has done nothing wrong. Nothing that we have found has any implications on him personally. The special counsel is going to have another legal fight to get testimony from former Vice President Mike Pence. On a trip to Iowa today, Pence said he intends to fight the subpoena he received related to the special counsel investigation into January 6th. And Jake, he's relying on a novel legal theory to shield himself from testifying, but says he'll take the fight all the way to the Supreme Court. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much for that. Appreciate it. Let's get some additional insight now from former federal prosecutor and CNN senior legal analyst uh, Ellie Honig. Uh, Ellie, uh, what do these latest court filings tell you? Is special counsel Jack Smith going after Trump specifically, do you think, for obstruction of justice? Yeah, Jake, I think there's no question now that Jack Smith is focused squarely on obstruction of justice. And I think even more specifically than that, we can tell that what really is drawing the most attention is this affirmation, this statement that Donald Trump's lawyers gave to DOJ last summer saying, we've now given you all the classified documents. It turns out there were many, many more classified documents. And I think DOJ is trying to figure out who made that statement, who made a knowing falsehood. And there's really two huge indicators here. First of all, when they got the search warrant to search Mar-a-Lago in the first place, one of the crimes they established to the judge by a preponderance of the evidence, not beyond a reasonable doubt, was obstruction. And now we know they're going to a judge saying we should get access to these attorney-client conversations because they related to a crime of obstruction as well. Take us through the ins and outs of attorney-client privilege. What could Trump's attorney be forced to disclose if the judge goes along with this request. So ordinarily, conversations between an attorney and client are privileged, meaning you don't have to testify about them. However, prosecutors can break through that privilege if they can establish that the conversations related somehow to an ongoing crime. Not talking about a crime that was committed in the past, but you and I as attorney and client are talking about something that is a crime itself. If you can establish that, then you can get access to testimony about what those conversations were. And of course, if that's the case, That'll go right to the heart of the obstruction issue here. And and how politically significant would an obstruction case be? Or might it add fuel to the fire of all these Republican allegations of of the Justice Department being weaponized by the Biden administration? So here's the real world dilemma that these prosecutors face. Ordinarily, if you're a prosecutor and you want to charge obstruction, it's the last count in the indictment. You charge whatever underlying crime and then obstruction into that investigation. Right. Here's the crime. Here's another crime. Here's another crime. And... Here's all the attempts to cover up through obstruction. Exactly. It's, it's a kicker. It's an extra point right. at the end. However, the law says you don't have to have an underlying crime. You can just charge an obstruction. The Mueller investigation, 
Perfect example. Mueller said there's no conspiracy crime with Russia, but he suggested there could be evidence of obstruction. But we remember what the political attack was. Obstruction of what? So legally you can do that, but it doesn't carry as much force with a jury and I think politically as well. Yeah, and then that's what we saw in a number of investigations that ultimately resulted in not guilty verdicts or that were thrown out to not much consternation. The idea that, oh, they lied to an FBI agent. Oh, they weren't straight with, uh, you know, during the investigation, not an actual crime underlying that, though. Yeah, it's one of these issues where there's a difference between what the textbook says. The textbook says, yes, you can charge just obstruction. But when you're standing in front of a jury of 12 normal human beings, they're going to be thinking, Okay, obstruction, but obstruction of, of what? what? And, yeah. and it really undermines your case if you don't have that. All right, Ellie Honig, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Ahead, the lessons that American crews say they're learning in Turkey right now as they sift through earthquake rubble with fears of the big one someday happening back home here in the U.S. Stay with us. In the world lead, rescuers doing that incredibly hard work, once again defying expectations, pulling a mother and her two children alive from earthquake rubble today. This was on hour 228. That's more than nine days since last Monday's earthquake. New drone video from the same province shows buildings barely standing. CNN's Sarah Seidner is in Turkey for us and caught up with U.S. search teams carefully navigating which buildings to search next. Rescue teams from around the world attack the piles of crushed buildings, sometimes with brute force, and other times as carefully as possible. It's a delicate balance trying to save any possible life underneath, or at the very least, keep bodies intact. It's going to take the thousands of rescuers here, um, not, not just the United States, but it's going to take a collaborative effort of all the rescue teams here. People are actually just hoping to find anybody, even if they're dead, so they can bury them. And that's uh, very important, too. The teams do this as bereaved families look on, watching their every move. I swear I have lost my days and nights, he says in tears. Our sorrow is great. While he waits, he prays for the four members of his extended family to emerge and remembers the terror of waking up to the sway of his own building. Our building was bending like this, but unlike this one, his building did not break apart. Yeah. Los Angeles County civil engineers are on the site with USAID to help the Turkish government sort out which buildings have light damage, major damage, or which need to be demolished. I think it would be okay to live here. Um, you would? Yeah. I think, you know, from this viewpoint, the main concern is actually the building next to it, falling on top of it. We are there when the owner of an apartment building approaches asking whether it's safe for her to live here again. And engineer Hannon goes with her inside. While the homeowner decided she was too afraid to stay in her building, despite Hannon saying it was assessed as being safe, others Hannon has met are relieved to hear an assessment like that. A lot of them that we've gone in are actually doing well. And once we tell those people that, they'll start crying, give us hugs, and it's heartbreaking. But to be able to tell someone your house is safe and it kept you safe during this, you know, it's it's something we can help with, something small we can do. Over 6,000 structures we put eyes on just to assess 
at a very quick glance. The findings of civil engineers are then put into a grid created by Los Angeles County Fire. So we can see where rescue is needed. It's a guide for the Turkish government to see the status of thousands of buildings affected by the quake. Still, nine days on, miraculous rescues are rare, but happening. In Adiyaman, a man is left speechless in grief while he awaits any signs of life. Five of his family members are buried in this rubble. A few hours later, an 18-year-old is pulled alive from this pile of death. Once again, spurring hope in those waiting for more people to be pulled to safety. Even in the disaster zone, children find a way to soothe themselves, despite the grief that continues to weigh heavy on everyone here. And that battalion chief that you heard from there with L.A. County Fire, uh, also working with USAID here in Turkey, said that, you know, he'd been to many, many disasters, including uh, the earthquake in Haiti that was devastating in 2010. He says this is perhaps the worst or at least one of the worst he's ever seen because it is so vast. And to give you some idea of how vast it is, you know, it stretches about 100 kilometers, uh, the damage. And we were learning from the Turkish government now that they have determined that 50 thousand buildings need to be demolished immediately. It is a unbelievable amount of work that is going to be left here for many, many months to come, Jake. 100 kilometers, more than 60 miles. Sarah Seidner in Turkey for us. Thank you so much. In our national lead, a shelter-in-place order is in effect for parts of Tucson, Arizona because of this, a nitric acid spill that started emitting fumes. A truck carrying the hazardous liquid crashed today. The driver died in the accident. Homes nearby were evacuated at the time as crews worked to clear the scene. Interstate 10 in Tucson is closed in both directions now as a precaution. Exposure to nitric acid can cause irritation to the skin, eyes, and mucous membranes, according to the CDC. Coming up next, nervous residents in Ohio don't know whom to believe as they learn soil possibly contaminated from that train derailment has yet to be cleaned up. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, emotional moments in court. Families and victims confronting the Topps Market gunman who carried out that racist mass shooting, killing 10 innocent people in Buffalo. On that day, this terrorist made the choice that the value of a black human meant nothing to him. Whatever the sentence is that he receives, it will never be enough. We'll bring you the judge's decision and what the shooter said, plus a new report offering proof that thousands of Ukrainian children are being rounded up and sent to Russian indoctrination camps. CNN follows one mother's journey to be reunited with her daughter. And leading this hour, confusion and uncertainty in East Palestine, Ohio, after the toxic train derailment. Is the water safe to drink? Is the air okay to breathe. Moments ago, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine announced that the water in East Palestine is safe to drink after new tests detected no contaminants. But property owners with private wells are encouraged to keep drinking bottled water until their wells are tested. We've also just learned that the soil at the derailment site has not been removed by the rail company yet. Experts say removal is key to cleanup because the soil acts almost like a sponge, soaking up the toxic chemicals and then releasing them into the soil and the air 
and the water over time, adding to the mounting concerns of the dead fish that CNN saw in a waterway near the derailment site. CNN's Jason Carroll has been talking to East Palestine residents who no longer know whom to trust. We're strongly recommending those who have not yet had their water source checked to use bottled water. Bottled water is being made available. More than a week after a toxic train derailment that led to the evacuation of much of this small Ohio town, state health officials are urging some East Palestine residents to drink bottled water until water tests are complete. Uh, This is going to be particularly important if you are pregnant, if you are breastfeeding, or if you are preparing formula for an infant. Officials say the toxic spill was largely contained the day after the derailment and that tests have shown the air quality is safe. But they have found low levels of contaminants in four nearby waterways spanning seven and a half miles, including Leslie Run, a creek which runs through East Palestine and neighboring Negley, right through the back of Kathy Reese's property. In the back of your property back here, they found dead Yeah, they saw dead fish. Reese says she has been drinking bottled water instead of well water ever since she started spotting dead fish in the creek following the derailment. She says she's still waiting for the state to come and test her well water. Air-wise, I feel okay. Water-wise, no. I, no. There's just too many chemicals and stuff that were spilled that they still don't want to identify completely. An Ohio Department of Natural Resources official estimates some 3,500 fish in the state have died following the train derailment. These people saw the flames from their homes and worry their neighborhood still may not be safe. What about testing water or ground? Nothing yet. No. And I guess that I don't recommend you put anything in the ground. I mean, vegetables or tomatoes or anything this year because we don't know. I don't think they're going to do enough. And some residents say they have been frustrated by what they describe as a lack of communication with officials on the ground. We pass all of the creeks and there's crew after crew with white hoses and black hoses all through the creeks. They're not telling us why, and this is, go- this is daily. I'm driving my children to school past all of this, and they're asking me questions that I don't have answers to. Some of their questions unanswered. We found getting information just as challenging. Can you just tell me, are they pumping water out, or are you uh, pumping water back in? Talking to the guys up at the top of the hill, sir. We're, we're just grunts. We're just trying to get a sense of what, what those pumps are. Can just someone just... Norfolk Southern can tell you everything. That's the hotline. They can tell you everything. You realize people are calling this number and no one is getting back to them. We're just told to direct people to that number. The governor asked by reporters Tuesday if he would feel comfortable living in East Palestine. I I think that I would be drinking the bottled water um, and I would be continuing to uh, um, find out what the tests were showing as far as the air. Um, I would be alert and, and concerned, but uh, I think I would probably be back in my house. But residents like Kathy Reese say they are left with few choices. Just, uh, I guess, pray and uh, keep drinking bottled water until we know for sure what's going on. And again, Jake, while the state EPA says the municipal water source is now safe to drink, that according to their most recent testing, uh, still recommending that those with who have private wells, people like who you just heard from, Kathy Reese there, still recommending that those residents in East Palestine make sure that they get their water tested. Uh, people like uh, Kathy Reese will be 
one of many tonight attending a meeting uh, with officials hoping to get more information about everything that's going on, including some of the cleanup efforts that are going on right behind us. Jay? Uh, Jason, you mentioned uh, Norfolk Southern. I just want to note that uh, their revenues uh, of $3.3 billion declared last October uh, were at an all-time quarterly uh, record, uh, Norfolk Southern, which is not getting back to the good people of East Palestine, Ohio. Well, it should also be noted they said that they were going to be setting up a fund, a $1 million fund for the folks in East Palestine. And I have to tell you, some people on the ground feel like that's a drop in the bucket compared to their profits. Yeah, that's the change in their, in their sofa. Uh, Jason Carroll, thanks so much. My next guest is an associate professor of environmental health science at The Ohio State University, Karen Dannemiller. Uh, Professor Dana Miller, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Right now, officials are monitoring a large plume of contamination moving down the Ohio River. At least 3,500 fish in surrounding waterways have died. There's a 1,000-square-foot area around the immediate site of the derailment where toxic chemicals were burned. Is it too soon, do you think, for anyone out there to be saying that the air is safe or the water is safe? It's really in the early phases of, of this particular phase of what's happening. Uh, we've moved now past the acute immediate danger of when this happened and residents were asked to evacuate. And now that people are able to come back to the area, we're starting the more long-term phase of determining what's going on. There's a lot of ongoing testing in the different environments, in the soil, in the water, in the air, to determine what's in different locations. And uh, we'll, we'll find out answers to these questions as time goes on. Does it alarm you at all that some of the people who return to the area are reporting strong chemical smells and that they're suffering from headaches? So uh, a lot of the compounds that were on the train are VOCs or volatile organic compounds. And these are chemicals that tend to partition into the gas phase. Anything that you can smell is a volatile organic compound. One thing to keep in mind is that while our, our noses are pretty good indicators of chemicals within our environment, they, the odor threshold doesn't always correspond to the level at which you would expect to have potential health effects occurring. So for ex an example, you might peel an orange and smell uh, those smells, but those aren't necessarily harmful to you. Um, and there are other chemicals that you can't necessarily smell at levels at which they may potentially be harmful. So that's something important to keep, to keep in mind. The thing that's really going to determine what potential risks are resulting from the chemicals that might be in these different areas are the measurements that are currently ongoing. One of the chemicals on the train, vinyl chloride, is used to make PVC piping. Exposure has been linked to rare forms of liver, brain, and lung cancer. When it burns, as in the controlled release, it creates a toxic gas, um, one that was actually used as a weapon during World War I. Federal and state officials claim they're testing the air every day. It's safe. They're not finding it. Are you at all worried that the testing might not be expansive enough? As you mentioned, this is a pretty complicated situation in terms of where these chemicals went into the environment. Uh, a lot of the chemicals that enter into the air initially are going to have a relatively short timeline on which they're at that site before they move away uh, from the area. As you said, the phosgene that was being released at the time uh, has probably stopped to be released after the burning was completed. Uh, some of the other questions that still remain are how much of these chemicals got into the soil, which you mentioned acts like a sponge and might hold those chemicals there that can then continue to off gas. So we're really waiting for those 
those measurements to come back to determine where those chemicals are in the environment and looking for those numbers from the ongoing sampling. All right, Professor Karen Dana Miller, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in Republican Congressman Bill Johnson, who represents Ohio's 6th District, which does include East Palestine, Ohio. Congressman, thanks for joining us. You just attended a meeting with some local leaders. Tell us what concerns they raised during the meeting and whether any new solutions have been presented. Well, I haven't gotten to that meeting yet, Jake. Uh, That meeting starts at 7 o'clock here Eastern Time. I'm on my way there now, but I was there on site on Monday. Well, tell us what concerns you have heard from the people uh, of East Palestine right now. Sure. I I mean, there's a lot to be concerned about. I, you know, I was there at the uh, site where the incident occurred. I was with the mayor, uh, the uh, fire chief, the county commissioners, uh, the EPA, uh, representatives from Norfolk Southern. uh, And uh, so the the mayor gave me the tour. Uh, I was there where the accident actually happened. I can tell you that I did not have any sense of itching eyes or burning skin or coughing or any of that. Uh, the mayor uh, told me that they are very comfortable with the, with the testing that is going, and it's going to continue, by the way, uh, that, you know, their, their city water or their village water system, they really routinely test that all the time anyway. And so they are going to continue to test that as they usually do but they're finding no contaminants in the water. Uh, in the well water situation, those residents can get their wells tested and uh, they've got to request that and the EPA will test those. And I understand that a lot of those tests have been done and they're not finding contamination there either. But look, we can't we can't dis, uh, dismiss or just uh, offhandedly uh, forget about the concerns that the residents there have. We got to continue this testing. That's the value of, of doing it. Governor DeWine uh, says that Norfolk Southern did not notify state officials that the train was carrying hazardous materials before entering the state of Ohio. And Governor DeWine is now calling on lawmakers such as yourself to reevaluate how cargo companies label potential hazardous material they're carrying. Is that something that you're interested in pursuing? Do you think that could make a difference in the future? Could it have made a difference here? Absolutely. And I, I, I want to I've already got my team looking at this. The governor and I had a discussion about this yesterday. I need to under, I don't sit on the TNI committee, so I'm not intimately familiar with it myself, but I will be when this is all over. Uh, I want to know what is the criteria? Uh, that requires that a train be labeled as carrying hazardous uh, material. Is it one out of 100 cars? Is it 20 out of 50? We know that 20 of the cars that derailed in East Palestine had uh, uh, had chemicals on them. That sounds like a high percentage to me. That's almost half of the 50 that derailed. So I want to look into that and see if that's a, an issue. And how do they notify the states? And how then does the states notify the local communities? And what are the responsibilities and the requirements of everybody along the way uh, once they are notified to make sure that uh, that everything is set up, that they're taking a, uh, you know, keeping a close watch on that train? You refer to the T&I committee for people at home. That's the Transportation and, and Infrastructure uh, Committee yeah, of the House of Representatives. No yes. problem. Uh, one, one last question, sir. Back in 2018, the Trump administration rolled back some regulations around freight trains. The argument then was 
uh, it would be good to, to cut the red tape. The safety increases did not meet the costs to the companies, including the types of brakes used on trains containing flammable oil. Um, I know it's early, but uh, will you be looking into whether or not that move contributed at all to this accident? Well, I, you know, right now my focus is on the residents of East Palestine and making sure that they have what they need, that their concerns are being addressed, that they get the answers that they need. I am confident that the National uh, Transportation Safety Board, they are looking at that. Their report is supposed to be out in about uh, two weeks. Uh, I am going to be looking closely at what their findings are. If there's something that we need to fix legislatively, uh, Jake, you can better believe in a rural area like this that has a lot of rail traffic coming through my little communities all across eastern Ohio, you can better believe I'll be taking action to, to fix anything that's broken. All right, Congressman Bill Johnson, thank you so much for taking the time. Please come back and tell us uh, more about what's going on in East Palestine as you learn more. We really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Jake. Coming up, a new report claiming thousands of Ukrainian children have been rounded up and held in Russian indoctrination camps. CNN is following along with one mom as she tries to reunite with her baby girl. Then, Republican Congressman George Santos. What's he been accused of now? Stealing puppies from an Amish farmer. You can't make it up. Stay with us. In our world lead, a new report claims that Russia has been holding thousands of Ukrainian children in a network of so-called re-education camps since the invasion of Ukraine began almost one year ago. This report from Yale University and the U.S. State Department details Moscow's efforts to relocate and re-educate the children and in some cases forcibly adopt out or militarily train some of them. Moves that the researchers claim are, are clear war crimes. CNN's David McKenzie follows one mother's journey to reunite with her daughter who was stuck in one of these hideous camps. Weeks ago, we first met Tatiana Vlaiko in Kyiv, in a shelter for displaced families. All of the mothers here separated from their children by the trauma of war. Emotions overwhelmed me when Lilia left. When I realized what was happening, it terrified me. All I wanted was the best for my child at the time. Her 11-year-old daughter, Lilia, stuck in a Russian camp in occupied Crimea. All the lessons are in Russian. At first glance, the retreat seemed like any other summer camp. But the loyalty expected from Ukrainian children is crystal clear. Part of what a new Yale University study calls systematic re-education efforts. But Tatiana and Lilia's story begins a year ago. Their hometown of Kherson fell quickly to advancing Russian troops. Within days, the occupiers began a campaign to Russify the population often coercing thousands of parents like Tetyana to send their kids to the camps. But when Ukrainian forces took back her son in November, Tetyana's daughter was on the wrong side of the front line. We provide a rescue mission for children who were abducted and now in Russia Federation and in Crimea. Mikola Kaleba, the founder of Save Ukraine, declined to say exactly how they negotiate their entry into enemy territory, just that the mothers can't do it on their own. It's impossible to communicate with any Russians because you can ask these mothers, they don't want to give children back. But Tatiana was ready to take the risk. I'm worried, of course. You cannot even imagine my emotions inside. 
It's fear and terror. It's emotional that I could see her soon, and this is a big deal for me. Eleven mothers and one father, putting on a brave face, but theirs is a perilous route. From Ukraine by road to Poland, into Russian ally Belarus, through the Russian Federation, to occupied Crimea. We were counting every kilometer on approach. I could feel it with every cell in my body. I was very emotional when we were closer and closer. Save Ukraine spent many months planning this moment. <laughs> Reuniting families shattered by war, returning children who just wanted to go home to Ukraine. Once I entered to meet, it was an outburst of emotions. Once we embraced, it was like a great weight lifted. In the end, they gave up the children willingly. But Save Ukraine says that hundreds, perhaps thousands, remain. Our two countries are at war, says Tetyana, but there are good people everywhere. You know, Jake, when the mothers were offered for their children to go to these camps, many of them were very conflicted about it because it got their children away from the front line, from danger in many cases. But because of this war and the fluid nature of the front lines at that time, many are now separated from them and having to go on this really desperate journey through multiple countries to get their children back. Those camps insist that the parents come to pick them up. You can kind of understand that. The Russians are calling this a State Department Yale study absurd. They say they are just trying to keep children safe. But there's clear evidence that there is indoctrination going on this, in this camp. And it's part of the policy of the Kremlin to make those parts of Ukraine basically Russian. Jake? All right, David McKenzie in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much for that moving report. Coming up next, how a high school course became the focus of the latest culture war fight in Florida. Stay with us. Hundreds of demonstrators are protesting a decision by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis banning Florida public schools from teaching an advanced placement African-American studies course. DeSantis argues that the course is indoctrinating kids by including concepts such as queer theory, though critics of DeSantis argue that prominent black and gay voices such as James Baldwin or Bayard Rustin should be recognized in such a course. And as CNN's Leila Santiago reports for us now, Governor DeSantis is even threatening to completely withdraw state funding for all AP classes. Hundreds of protesters gather outside the Florida State Capitol, including faith leaders from around the country condemning the governor's decision to block a college-level African-American studies course from high schools. Our children need to know the whole story. Not to not only know how bad you were, but to know how strong they are. This just days after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suggested the state might reevaluate its relationship with the College Board, which administers advanced placement, or AP, elective classes and the SAT in Florida. Does it have to be done by the College Board, or can we utilize some of these other providers who I think have a really, really strong track record? Turns out there are. IB courses, they're actually more rigorous 
than AP and the colleges accept it. You have the Cambridge, which is also more rigorous. The college board is the sole provider of AP classes and tests and a move to get rid of them could affect students across the state of Florida. They want to get rid of like, all AP classes and that would greatly disadvantage everybody in Florida. This feud with the college board stems from the state's objections to a proposed AP course on African-American studies. The Florida Department of Education expressed concern about several topics of study in its pilot course, including black queer studies, the movements for black lives, and black feminism. They also cited concerns with the works of specific authors and scholars. The College Board later released the official framework for the course, with many of the topics that the state of Florida objected to removed. Instead, students can take them on as part of a required research project. But the two sides are still at odds over what prompted the changes. The state claims their objections motivated them, while the college board asserts that politics did not play a role in the final framework for the course and has even accused the Department of Education of slander. Under DeSantis, Florida has banned the teaching of critical race theory and passed new legislation barring instruction that suggests anyone is privileged or oppressed based on their race or skin color. We are tired, tired as hell of people telling us how to uh, direct our history. Um, black history is a, everybody's history. It's American history. And Jake, those who came here today to march said this was about more than protesting. This was about demanding change. As for that AP course, the Department of Education says that the College Board has not submitted the official framework for the course to be reviewed. Jake? All right, Leila Santiago in Tallahassee, Florida. Thanks. Let's discuss with my panel and Eva McKend. We saw an earlier version of this. You were covering the governor's race in Virginia last year. I think it was last year. Yes. And uh, we saw Governor Youngkin ride to the governor's mansion on issues having to do with education and some of these uh, red meat cultural issues. What do you make of this one? I think we have always been confronted with this tension about how black history is taught in American schools. And that is due in part to this relentless effort to, to sanitize and minimize uh, black history and also a refusal to contextualize the history. I don't know how you talk about, you mentioned Bayard Rustin, but James Baldwin, Audre Lorde, without talking about queerness, without engaging in queer theory. And let us remember, these are young people who are pretty advanced, so we'll have the emotional competence to take on this subject matter in a real way. Right, these are that, juniors and seniors in high school, not like five-year-olds. Exactly. That being said, from a political perspective, I would imagine Governor DeSantis is going to continue to ride this until the wheels fall off because <laughs> uh, he views this as a winning political issue. Unfortunately, I think it's at some folks' expense. What Democrats have to do now is figure out, and we saw the beginning of this with Al Sharpton coming to Florida, is a competent, uh, consistent counter-argument. No, obviously, uh, David, um, these are very appealing fights that he's picking when it comes to the Republican base. I just wonder, will it also be appealing when he tries to if he wins the presidential nomination, for example, broaden the base. Yeah, so look, politics is about addition, right, not subtraction. It's one plus one, not one minus one. And so anything that you do to subtract parties, people, you, 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 you push them aside from your, your group, doesn't help you in the, in the general election, clearly. But as you pointed out, Governor Yunkin and others, right, this is 
These issues about and, and the surrounding school boards, right, which people view as very local, they want to be in charge. They don't want the college board teaching our kids. They want their local school board. So it's you know, the pandemic in a certain way got parents hyper involved in their child's education. And now it's kind of percolated up. And so you saw DeSantis. They may not just get rid of this course. They may get rid of all the college board in, 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 in Florida. They say, look, we can scrap it. We'll, we'll, st- we'll do it ourselves. But also, so, of course, in terms of addition and subtraction, I think what a lot of Republicans who are looking at this, uh, the 2024 race are thinking about is 2016 and how Donald Trump really wrote a lot of division and picked a lot of fights. And, and, so, and that was a very successful strategy for him. So but, but, you're seeing DeSantis really lean into this. He's relishing these fights. And he's definitely, as Eva said, not going to let up. I think that's right. But the problem is that that kind of approach did not work for Donald Trump in 2018, 2020, or 2022. And I think that DeSantis is massively starting to overreach. The difference with the the governor of Virginia is he wasn't governor yet. DeSantis has actually passed these laws. And if you really look at what these laws do, it's massive socialism covered in an anti-woke cloak. Because, socialism. because what they're doing is they're actually terrorizing families in terms of going to school and not knowing whether they can talk about something. And if they do, they're going to get in trouble with the law. Teachers are terrified of teaching something in order to go sideways with what they can or can't teach in terms of black history. Showing a Harriet Tubman book could get them in trouble. Showing a picture, no. a poster of Cesar Chavez might get them in trouble. God forbid there's a kid whose parents work for a grape company that might make them feel oppressed. I mean, it's ridiculous the extent to which this governor is overreaching and it will work for the Republican base. But in a in a state and in a country that is becoming more multi-ethnic, multicultural Mm -hmm. and younger every day, it's not going to work. Look, I I just and also just we, we, we talked about this briefly. Have an Al Sharpton show up at the steps of Tallahassee. Total, win- total winner for, for, for Ron DeSantis, right? He's making his point for him. It's very, very, very politically contextual. Ron DeSantis is a good point. Say, look, I must be doing something right. He doesn't have to do anything. So it's really red meat for the base. For now? Thing to for the want, base, yeah. Also, though, I think just like a pra- totally practical thing is the threat of all AP courses. A lot of students take AP courses yeah. their junior and senior years. Mm-hmm. And then it's been a minute since I was in high school. But as I recall, you could use those to get college credits. Yeah, I think he was talking about replacing them with yeah. different yeah. kinds yeah, of so classes. Just, but how will that work so there, is there, a key thing. There is some breaking news on something, which is just moments ago, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence commented on Nikki Haley's campaign announcement uh, while also teasing another presidential bid may be on the way. Take a look. I wish her well. Uh, Ambassador Nikki Haley did a great job in our administration. And, uh, uh, she may have more company soon uh, in the race for president. And I promise folks here in Iowa and all of you, I'll keep you posted. So he's all but saying he's, go- he's going to run. He's, he- an, he's an Iowa for, for yeah. God's sake. Right? Right. Like, yeah. I just happened to be in Iowa. One other thing that's uh, some interesting news is sources are telling CNN that embattled Republican Republican Congressman George Santos is contemplating seeking reelection himself, (laughs) even if he's indicted on criminal charges. Um, Republicans hate this story so much. House Republicans. They do. But in many ways, they are sort of coddling this right by not all of them are calling on him to resign. 
the damage really is already done, Jake. I think that I've been consistently talking to his constituents and folks in that district, and they are principally concerned with the long-term viability of that seat. Right. And the longer that Congressman Santos uh, remains, it really puts that in jeopardy. And Catherine, take a listen to this. So Santos is facing yet, I mean, you can't make these up, is the truth (laughs) of the matter. So here's another allegation of being a lying con man, this time from an Amish dairy farmer accusing Congressman Santos of stealing puppies. Take a listen. He says, okay, we're going to take that puppy and that puppy. And his assistant grabs the two puppies, takes them out the door, and he pulls out a check. I was like, oh, no, is this guy going to pay me with a check? But then I was very suspicious. Check balance. The check balance, right. This is George Santos. Right. Do you believe this is the man who bought your dogs and put them in the car and took them away from you? I feel it is. Uh, the Amish don't like uh, being photographed. I assume that's why that was shot. But like, uh, what? <laughs> I mean, he said he was suspicious of the check, and clearly he was right. Yeah. I mean, it just I, the well, list the list of these these accusations is endless. I mean, I guess I do wonder what happened to the puppies. Are the puppies okay? Well, I mean, it's, yeah. sad, it's sad that the Amish dairy farmer had better oppo research than the democrats did right he's like i don't trust george santos there's something suspicious about this guy but the democrats in the district didn't didn't they, that out come you on you can do almost anything in politics and get away with it but don't freaking mess with the puppies well we'll see i'm just trying to think about what group he has not picked on i guess orphans might be the only ones left and the night is still young <laughs> The night is still young. Veterans it's gone terrible. But he's defiant, David, uh, amid the daily allegations against him. He tweeted out, let me be very clear, I'm not leaving. I'm not hiding. And I'm not backing down. Uh, Just like a gallon of milk, he's got a shelf life, right? He's, you think so? Oh, he's, he's going to expire. He'll get indicted. Speaking of dairy farmers. He'll get it, exactly. But, he'll, but he'll he get even indicted. said that gone. even if he's indicted, he's no, no, going to run again. He'll run again, but he'll, Look, be, he'll, I, be, he'll be forced to I think this leave. is a stain on Republicans. Every day that goes by and they don't do anything about kicking him out of there, I agree with Mitt Romney. He doesn't belong there. But they will. There's a, there's a process. There's a process. Chaos and, oh, yeah. and just dysfunction in their and caucus, lies. which is not helpful for them. <laughs> I right. him from his constituents, though, because they did try to speak with him today at his Queens district office, and he didn't come out. Well, he might have been stealing puppies. Uh, thanks to all. I mean, that's bit, that takes time to steal puppies, Eva. All in the family. The Republican-controlled House Oversight Committee is going after the Biden family's ties to Saudi Arabia. But will they look at Donald Trump's family ties? The top Democrat on the committee joins us next. Uh, In our world lead, the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee is demanding documents from Donald Trump's son-in-law and former senior advisor Jared Kushner related to the investment firm that Kushner founded almost immediately after leaving the White House, an investment firm that raised $2 billion from Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund, chaired by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Raskin writes to Kushner, quote, recent reports have renewed the committee's concerns that this investment may have constituted a quid pro quo for your official actions in the White House, unquote. The letter follows an explosive new report from the Washington Post revealing some previously unknown details, including that Kushner began the process of starting the private equity firm literally the day after he left the White House. Here to discuss is Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee. Um, Congressman, I have a lot of questions for you, but first, of course, you're currently battling cancer. You're wearing a bandana that was given to you as a gift, amazingly, by little Stevie Van Zandt of the E Street Band. How are you doing? 
I'm hanging tough. I mean, I've lost 90% of my hair and um, I'm trying to hang on to my eyebrows. But um, other than that, uh, I'm feeling great. And uh, we think the treatments are working. So thanks for asking, Jake. And I know you're a Springsteen fan. You've been to 13 concerts. So the gift from little Stevie is, uh, is, well, is well given. Um, you're, suggesting a po- you're suggesting a possible quid pro quo here uh, between Kushner and the Saudis. That's a pretty serious allegation. Uh, lay it out for us. Well, it, it really starts with Jared Kushner convincing Donald Trump to use his first foreign uh, state visit as president of the United States to go to Saudi Arabia, which was a suggestion so shocking and startling that everybody in the Trump administration's own foreign policy group, including Secretary of State Tillerson, opposed it. Even Trump said it was not going to work because of the horrific human rights situation in Saudi Arabia and their terrible uh, record of abusing the rights of women and uh, the trouble they make abroad and so on. But nonetheless, Kushner was able to convince him that somehow it would be in their best interest to do it. And Trump went over there and that began a very deep and intimate embrace with uh, the Saudi regime and with uh, Mohammed bin Salman covering up for their human rights abuses, aligning with them in their blockade against Qatar, um, and then even helping to cover up for uh, Mohammed bin Salman's order of the assassination and brutal dismemberment by drawing and quartering of Washington Post contributing columnist Jamal Khashoggi, right. you remember, who was killed when he was over in Turkey. And uh, both uh, Kushner and President Trump were deeply involved in protecting him from the legal and political and international repercussions of that sordid deed. Um, and Trump bragged to Bob Woodward, quote, I saved his ass, uh, speaking of the the homicidal crown prince. So when he then uh, sent Pompeo over to Saudi Arabia, he said, tell the, tell the crown prince that he owes us. Right. Tell them that he owes us. So here's what happens. Um, the, uh, the Kushner makes return trips to Saudi Arabia and on the day after the Trump administration ends, creates a new business called Affinity, which I think is curious because the uh, the plutocrats and the kleptocrats of Mar-a-Lago have an affinity with the theocrats and the autocrats of Saudi Arabia. But anyway, right. Affinity gets two more than $2 billion, more than 99% of its money from Saudi Arabia as a private equity firm. And that's what is launched then by uh, Jared Kushner. But, but- we sent him requests... Yeah. based on the initial glimmerings of this eight months ago, and they have completely refused to comply in any material way with the documents so, that we're looking for. But the new reporting makes it absolutely mandatory that they comply with us. So, I mean, all I would say is, I mean, yeah, it, it, it looks bad, but that's not proof of a quid pro quo. Um, it might just be it's proof of, you know, amoral, real politic, birds of a feather flock together. I mean, just because... They all like together and were amoral together doesn't mean that there was anything illegal that happened. You're right. It may be completely coincidental that he came back with a $2 billion No, not coincidental, but but I'm not saying it's a coincidence. I'm saying, like, they like each other. They they can do business together. They lack, they they all, all of them don't care about human rights together. I mean. Well, okay. First, Jake, this is what the investigation is about. This is why we're demanding 
the hundreds of documents which we haven't seen yet. We just want to know what the facts are. But I will tell you this, that the investment board for the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Investment Fund uh, recommended strongly against this, unanimously against it, right. uh, voting to say this is a new company. They were unproven. They would not put a dime into it. And they were overruled by the royal crown prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, saying that this was for Jared Kushner. So it's led to speculation, not just in America, but in Saudi Arabia, that this is an inside political deal. In any event, this is what this is what the factual investigation is about. And we're hoping we can get together on a bipartisan basis to do a factual investigation because he was a high ranking government official when this happened. And the emoluments clause says that no government official yeah. can take anything from a prince or a king or foreign government without the permission of Congress. I, I do have to ask court records obtained by the Daily Mail show that the president's brother, Jim Biden, was hired to help a Philadelphia construction company resolve a dispute with the Saudi government because he was the sibling of then Vice President Biden. That also looks pretty shady, doesn't it? Well, I've not I have not seen any details about that. I would be interested to look at it. I don't know that you're talking about a government official. I don't believe he was a government official. No, at the he time, was not. I don't know. He was any not. Of the facts there. But look, our point is we're we're opposed to corruption generally. If there's corruption out there, let's do a neutral fact based investigation. That's our job as the oversight committee. But the evidence is here overwhelming that this stinks to high heaven. All right. I don't disagree that it stinks to high heaven. Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, thanks so much. Hope you uh, continue to, to beat this thing. We'll be right back. Tense moment in a Buffalo, New York courtroom today. That's a victim's relative in the top supermarket mass shooting, lunging at the gunman. The shooter who pleaded guilty to killing 10 black people in a racist attack at the store last May will now spend the rest of his life in prison without the possibility of parole. CNN's Omar Jimenez watched that hearing unfold. Omar, emotions, obviously, and understandably quite high. Yeah, Jake, you, you kind of got a feeling going into it that emotions were going to be high when you saw the number of family of those killed who were lined up to speak as part of this sentencing hearing. I don't know that we thought it was going to be this emotional, but nonetheless, it was. Take a listen to some of those family members speaking, in some cases, directly to the shooter. I hope you spend the rest of your life, every second, every minute, every hour, rehearsing the daunting sound of the screams and the echoes of the lives you snuffed out. The hatred that you must have in your heart for black people, I will never understand. I don't want to understand it. But I must say this, I pray to God they do not kill you. Now, that last part alluding to federal charges that could still offer the, penalty, the death penalty that have yet to be decided. But he was sentenced to life without parole at the state level. And before that sentence was given, the shooter offered an apology. I want to warn, some explicit language comes with it. Take a listen. I believed what I read online and acted out of hate. And now I can't take it back, but I wish I could. And I don't want anyone to be inspired by me and what I did. You 
And that was really the, the tone of the hearing. I mean, they, that apology obviously seemed to have little effect on those who were listening. And at least the district attorney there believes that that apology was made because he was trying to wiggle out of, again, the potential death penalty, which points to the federal charges that are still to be considered. That death penalty is left to be considered by Attorney General Merrick Garland. No decision has been made there. But the shooter's attorney said back in December, if they decided to plead guilty, they would only do so under the condition the death penalty would be taken off. But today's hearing felt less like a sentence and more like an opportunity for these families to process their pain. Yeah. Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues next with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.